Welcome to the CFOleader.com podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Castro. I'm so excited to be here. We have a fantastic episode lined up with David Bedell, the CFO of HireVue. David, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Anthony. I'm good. We are going to be talking today about an awesome topic, how to manage a board, right? Which is such a loaded question right there. Um, but before we do that, David, why don't you just take 30 seconds to a minute, talk about you, a little bit your uh, your career history and a little bit about what you're doing at HireVue. Thanks. Let me give a little bit about HireVue first. So HireVue, um, been there a couple of years as a CFO. Um, it's the leading video interviewing and recruiting technology platform. It was founded here in Utah for about 10 years, and lately we've been expanding um, across the country as, as we do our hiring. Now about 30% international. Some of our largest clients are Goldman Sachs, Delta Airlines, Carnival Cruises, some big names that are uh, great fun clients. So uh, personally, I grew up in Vermont, been in Utah for about five years, spent most of my career in California, which is directly correlated to marrying a California girl in college and ending up in, <laughs> in California for a long time near her family. Right. That's great. Well, let's dive right into it. Let's talk. So managing a board. Um, I mean, again, like I said before, what a loaded question. So let, let's let's talk first. I want to split this discussion into two parts. First, we're going to talk about the pre-hire scenario. Okay. And so you've, you, you have a recruiter that's reached out to you, you're evaluating an employment opportunity, and you're doing some due diligence on the company. And we're going to talk through some of the frameworks and thought processes around evaluating what are you actually getting into, right? What are the dynamics you need to be aware of as you're about to join a company? And how can you make a better informed decision of whether you want to actually join the company and be CFO of that unit? Later, after that discussion, we're going to jump into talking about, you know, managing a board that you've already joined. So you're already at a company, you're managing a board right now. What does that look like? How can you evaluate yourself and your performance, your personal performance of managing the board and what you could do, some tips and tricks hopefully to manage that board better. Okay. So let, let's start again with the pre-hire scenario. So you've, you're, you're evaluating an opportunity. Obviously you have companies that are VC backed, PE owned. You may even have a company that's, you know, already public or is anticipating going public. Uh, and you may even have a board that's just entrepreneurs, right? You're, you're, it's an early stage company. There's only entrepreneurs on the board right now. Talk us through from your perspective, what are you evaluating and thinking as you're going through those different scenarios? And the first thing I I, I do is if I were um, interviewing for a company and thinking of joining it is usually you'll meet with the CHRO or the CEO of the company you're going for before you get passed onto the board. Typically you'll have some meeting there. First question I ask is them, Hey, what, what's the board like, you know, who are the members of the board? You can learn a lot. Most CEOs will be very open to sharing how they're bored, the good and the bad. And that'll be probably be the best insight that you'll get from the company. Just asking somebody who works with them a lot already for their insight as part of your questions that you ask, because typically you'll do that before you get passed on to a board member to meet them. Got it. Once you have that, I think a lot of it depends, like you said, the stage. You talk about the stage you're at. If it's um, if you're a very early stage and you're all angel investors, typically angel investors are in a position where they don't own the majority of the company. That's just the, the stage you're at. And so they're not as hands-on. They typically have opinions, but they tend to be a little bit more hands-off. I trust you. You're the management team. Um, you still have, a, you know, the, the CEO or founders typically still have a majority stake and can overrule them, but they just don't have as much say. As you get further along stage B, stage C, at some point there, typically it flips where you start having the, uh, the investors own more than the founders. And then the board dynamics 
<laughs> and they definitely put their thumb on the scale a little bit more. They know they're in control and they know that they're a lot more powerful. And as you, as I look at those, I typically, it just depends on the firms they're at. Um, some firms are known to be very, very aggressive and some are not. Mm-hmm. And it also a lot depends on the person at the firm, but typically there's a style that goes with different firms. Like Bessemer was one of mine early on, very super helpful, tried to do everything they could, weren't super bossy. Um, I had one that I won't mention out of New York that was the opposite. Like they were very bossy, very demanding, and mm-hmm. it was just a different culture. Um, but I think a lot of it you can learn by talking to other people that have the same venture companies in their portfolio and learning a lot about the the culture of each of the the venture firms. Yeah, I would say that that's that's the point I was going to bring up is is I would me personally I would do diligence and try to find people in my network that either have worked or had past experience to try to just get in like what is it like working for these people? Um, what's the dynamic? What are they looking for just to get as much intelligence as possible. That makes absolute sense. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of VC backed companies here in, in Utah. And like you said, it probably depends on, you know, what's the VC firm, how much control do they have? And then obviously doing your diligence there PE, however, where they have a majority ownership stake, um, the dynamic there potentially is a little bit different, I would assume, right? Because, you know, VCs are, you know, they're driving towards obviously an an exit um, and they have obviously their motivations, the PE firm, obviously they're wanting to flip equity as well, but since they own everything, talk a little bit about how you should perceive that and be on your toes a little bit more with a PE firm. Yeah. And for transparency, I am Higherview is currently majority owned by Carlisle, one of the largest um, private equity firms in the world. Mm-hmm. So the my perspective on that is at first is depends on the firm. I have some friends at the company I was at before that are bought out by Toma Bravo. Their experience is very, very different than mine with Carlisle. Um, the similarities are that they're in control and <laughs> they, they know they're in control. The difference is, is what they do with the control. Some private equity firms, uh, there's some, especially in the software world, that are known for coming in and telling you what to do. You're an execution machine, not super concerned about your ideas. In that case, the best thing is just align with them, align with the team, understand what their exit plan is. And then as long as you believe in the strategy, it can be a great job. You're not at odds with them. You're you're working with a, a joint goal and you can feel really good about it. Um, different firms, and this is how more the Carlisle is with us, is they believe in the management team and they say, you guys tell us what the right thing to do is. We believe in you. And it just depends on the, the culture of the private equity firm. It is true that they are, they are in control and that's a big difference. And But the good of that is you don't have to do nearly as much alignment with when I had, I was going through a series D. And so we had multiple VC investors by that point um, on our cap table and trying to align the three or four different board members, each one from a different VC firm is a pain. It's hard. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're different cultures. They came in at different times. They have different, you know, some of them just, it's like by the time you're at series D just want to get out. You know, they're like, I've been in here since series B or series. I just want to get out where the series D folks are like, Hey, I just invested $40 million. I want to see my, that turn into $80 million. And they're very prescriptive. So getting everybody aligned can be really difficult. And with a, with a private equity firm, the alignment is, it's almost a given, like they're aligned. There's a case, they know what you're doing and that they'll, they'll align behind the scenes, but by the time they ever get to me. So I found that that's actually really pleasant to work with a, 
a private equity is the alignment issue is just not nearly as difficult as it is with multiple VCs on the cap table. Okay, no, that makes sense. So, so kind of summarizing, if you have a VC backed company where again, there's multiple different, potentially multiple different board members, you want to come in and understand what are the motivations and stages that are just driving all the different board members, right? Be aware and conscious of that, right? Um, and knowing their cap table structure is and where you're at. And, and that is super helpful because sometimes they're underwater, sometimes they're not. And it can really drive decisions because if they know they're not going to make money, then mo the VCs are in the business to make money. If there's any chance they're not going to make money, the dynamic shifts really quickly with the relationship because they get worried that they're going to look bad. They're going to lose their job, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I really liked your point about, you know, not rocking the boat with the PE firms, or just maybe that's something you may want to be obviously very aware of because they probably have their own strategy. Uh, but that kind of ties me to this idea of just understanding why, why are they hiring a CFO, right? Is this the first time they've had a CFO? Um, did they have one before that didn't work out? Why didn't it work out? And, you know, like you said, are you there to not rock the boat and just tow the company line and strategy, or are you there to rock the boat? to get things in line, to fix things, right? Understanding their motivations and the board for why you're there obviously goes without saying is probably critical so that you can feel that you're comfortable with that, that hiring decision. 100% agree with that. I've, I've seen, and we all get the, the CFO job, like reach outs from everybody. This week I got one where it was merging two companies together and the CFO's job was going to be coming in and, and reducing a bunch of costs. That was a very different directive than what my job is, which is grow the business. And you'd hire a different skill set. Knowing that going in, you may or may not want that job. Some people don't love cost-cutting jobs. Some people do. And it's just a different skill set. Right. I think, uh, you know, when you're early in your you're CFO of an early stage company, you have to be more fluid and adaptable because like you said, with a PE firm, you know, they have control, they know what they want, but as you're growing an earlier stage company and you're courting different VCs, depending on who you actually take funding from, and hopefully you have the option, <laughs> but unfortunately, if you don't, uh, the personality shifts could be of the board could be constantly changing, right? It could be a dynamic, uh, changing environment that you just have to be aware of, right? What does the new VC want? What is the, uh, how am I appeasing the, you know, the old VCs and just being aware of your situation and the new uh, demands on, on you as a CFO is just, you have to be conscious of that and constantly evaluating that. One thing that is, it's a really good point, Anthony. One thing that to think about that is people, as you add funding to your cap table, as you go through different rounds, you can control who's on the board by picking people that you want to work with go, uh, going forward. One of the biggest mistakes I've, peen, I've seen people do is choose funding based on the pure financials, not who they're going to work with. And I think that's a mistake. I mean, maybe, maybe they're going to offer you, you know, 15 million uh, for 30% of the company instead of 16 million uh, for 20, you know, for, for, you know, 35% of the company or something, it's a slightly different ratio. And you're like, look, I'm going to go with the one that mathematically works out better. Not always the best choice because I have definitely learned different people are significantly better to work with. In fact, when we sold to the Carlisle group, one of our VCs stood up and essentially played the hero role and rolled a lot more shares versus the other ones. And that's the kind of person that I know if I ever have to go do funding, I'm going to them because they were a partner. They did the right thing for the whole company versus just getting their money out and running. And I, I trust them implicitly now because I've been in the trenches with them. And that's, 
that's worth a ton, but, it, but it's very much overlooked when people are, are taking on funding because they'll often just look at, oh, they gave me the best deal. And it's not always the best choice long-term. I, I agree. I agree. And hopefully if you're working with entrepreneurs that that hopefully they understand that dynamic, but I, I kind of feel like my role when I come in, especially in a fundraising capacity is I, I'm trying to drive as many funding options for the entrepreneurs and the company, right? I, I don't ever want the company to be in a position where we only got one option, it's take it or leave it, because then you just, <laughs> you get what you got. But um, hopefully, you know, I'm driving up, uh, you know, a competitive process where you're having multiple bids from VCs, and then the entrepreneurs can have choices, right? And they can evaluate. And I, I agree with you, I emphasize heavily what is the, um, you know, what is the dynamic with this, with this VC? Um, are they guaranteeing that they're going to be your single point of contact? That they're going to be working with you and, uh, you know, just uh, have we done our due diligence on the VC firms and doing that? And so I, I, I'm with you hundred percent understanding who you're marrying. Cause it, it, that's the only thing I can think of like, as a parallel. It's, it's a marriage basically, right? You're in it together for better or worse. And you better make sure that you are with someone that you want to go. Cause when it gets ugly, you know, it's, you, you want someone that's in your corner. I agree. And some of the bigger VC firms have a lot of benefits that people don't account for too, like Bessemer, Sequoia, others, they have whole programs for getting you better deals on Salesforce, better deals on um, like with contractors, et cetera, that a lot of people discount that as um, not that valuable. But I found that having the CFO roundtables with a lot of these big firms too are very valuable. It's a, it's a little bit of a, a secondary fringe benefit, but can really help you make better decisions, especially when you've got a, a big you know, strategic crossroads in a company, you can send a note out to like five or six other CFOs or CEOs on the, in your network. And oftentimes these bigger firms are really helpful at connecting you and helping you to figure out a situation. That's great. That's great. Well, let's, um, let's transition now. So we've talked a little bit of the pre-hire. Let's talk about the post-hire. So let's say, you know, you're in your company and now we're kind of doing a self-evaluation of how we are um, standing, how, what's our personal standing with the board and again, how to manage the board better. And the first thing I want to talk about is this concept of, of basically your, your player types, right? When you go into a board and let's say you get a board of five or six different people, um, obviously you need to understand that there's going to be different personalities and the, these different like I said, player types, right? You're going to have, uh, you know, when you're doing presentations or providing materials, you'll have certain board members that are more likely to ask questions. You have other board members who are more quieter than others. You'll have, uh, you'll have board members who are very vocal about their opinions, right? And so you know exactly where they stand and what they think. You'll have others who may be more reserved, right? And you don't really, you can't read them very well and they, you don't know what they're thinking, right? And you'll have others who are your, your, your cheerleaders, right? They're more supportive of you. They're willing to open up and they, they want you to succeed, um, more willing to, you know, discuss things with you. And so I, I think I'm curious in your, uh, in your career, as you kind of manage with different beer boards, what are the kind of player types that you've seen and how have you dealt with them and managed them personally? Yeah, that's a there are a lot of different types. So typically I found that um, the board members all have one thing in common. They're, they're investing in you to make money. And so that tends to be a common theme. It depends a lot on how aggressive they are or their, how long their, ten, their uh, investment timeline is. And so understanding that about the investors tends to be my first step is just what are they in for? What are their goals? And that helps me to understand the different personalities. As I've had different personalities, some, like you said, are just super data heads and are really, really interested. And you know that 
you know, John is going to poke on page 53. What I've had to do in the past when I have those, you, you know that they're going to um, cause a stir in the board meeting is you meet with them ahead of time. My dad once told me yep. you, you never ask a girl to marry you unless you know the answer. I think that the same <laughs> principle goes into the board meeting. You don't go into a board meeting unless you know the reaction they're going to take. And if you're uncertain, pre-wire it because having that public display where there's some some hostility or some something that could happen edgy is never good for anybody. It's just, if you don't know the outcome, get it ahead of time. Plan so you, you've got the 90, 95% confidence about what's gonna happen in the meeting. Otherwise you're just putting you, your CEO at risk for, for having a conversation that you're not prepared to have. Uh, I agree. I have, uh, I have two roles, my, my two golden roles as CFO. My first one is never assume anything, right? And if you are put in a position where you have to assume something, you assume the worst always. Uh, but my, my second golden rule, like you said, is no surprises, no good surprises, no bad surprises, no surprises. And so uh, very, very uh, pertinent with the, the management of a board, right? Like you said, you should know exactly what's going to happen. There should be no surprises when you're presenting materials and whatnot. I, I think um, another thing in terms of understanding motivations and managing a board is understanding the dynamics of the board members themselves. Like for example, uh, investment committees, right? Investment committees play hugely into with VCs and, and whatnot. They're, they're reporting back. They have metrics that they're reporting. They're being put on the spot in terms of performance. If you can understand the the players on the you know on the investment committee and what what specifically the investment committee is looking for and the pressure that they're applying to the VC that can give you some insights and intelligence in terms of you know maybe how you should prepare your data a certain way or the messaging to kind of help help the VC you know perpetuate the the message that they're trying to give to their their stakeholders and the investment committees would you agree with I that agree. I I completely agree one of the very tactical ways I found to do that. And I'm surprised more people don't ask for this. Ask for their model. Like just say, hey, what is your model? And, and a lot of folks will share it for you, maybe sometimes reluctantly, but a lot of times the VCs will share their model. Then you know what they're comparing against. And it's just so helpful. Rather than guessing, making assumptions, you've got it there. I've got my Sequoia model. I've got my Bessemer model. I've got my TC, whatever. You have all their different models. You know what they're measured against. You know, crap, this is going to piss Johnny off because... I'm, I've missed my expenses. I'm, my EBIT does less than what he thought it was going to be this quarter. It just is so helpful to know what they're coming in with so that you can be prepared for the questions. And a lot of times they'll just share it with you. Um, okay. Sometimes I, they won't, but this is fantastic. This is fascinating. I, I'm going to press a little bit further. So what would, what would this VC model look like? Is it basically like I have my investments, you know, one through five or whatever it is, this is my projection of revenues from each one of them, my EBITDA from each of them, and kind of like the, explain to me, what is that, what does that look well, typically, like? Typically, this is like the model for your company. So you'll have your forecast for your company and they'll say, okay, here's what I was expecting you to do this quarter. Hmm. A lot of times they'll hedge back what you tell them so right. that they're ensuring that you get their board, their, their investment committee, mm -hmm. see something, uh, a beat and raise kind of mindset. Um, but knowing what their model is, it's just so helpful because if you can look at, here's my PL, here's what they were expecting it to be, then you can be prepared for the conversation at the end of the quarter. You know exactly where they were expecting you to land. And uh, I found that to be amazingly effective, especially when you've got several different VCs because they, they, they won't all have the same model. And sometimes they'll just say, we just take your numbers and that's great. That's easy to, to know what it is. 
but a lot of times they'll hedge back or they'll do something different. Um, if you're always under on expenses, which is a trend that a lot of us ought to do, we play the game of being a little conservative, they'll hedge out your expenses. And you know that, okay, I've done that consistently enough. They're starting to call my, call my bluff. You know? so it's mm-hmm. good yeah. I, I'm not sure what you do, but like, I always, when I pre- prepare my operating plan, and this is going to be something we'll deep dive in another episode, but uh, in my operating plan preparation, I always have three. I have my internal, which is our more aggressive, our internal, you know, goals are in alignment. I have my board, which we're, we're very confident we can hit, right? Is I second. And then I have a, a debt, uh, you know, debtor type, you know, covenant type model, which is, yeah. you know, it's in the bag. It's like, there's no doubt whatsoever we're going to hit. And those are usually the three types of messaging that I use when presenting. And I, I, I never, ever want to go to the board. I don't think any CFO, any company does, but I, I always want to make sure that, you know, my quotas, uh, you know, my expense budget and targets are always in alignment with that board budget so that, or excuse me, with the, uh, with the, 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 yeah, with the board budget uh, to make sure that we have breathing room and that there's just, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to be in a position where we can say, hey, we've hit this and never have to have a bad, bad quarter ideally, right? But that's obviously another thing to, yeah, that's important yeah, to I agree. I, I think in earlier stage companies, I've done the exact same thing as you, but when I've got to later stage companies, that delta between board and your forecast tends to shrink uh, as your mm. growth rate goes down a little bit. So it becomes harder and harder to hedge the heck out of the board because they're pushing you to, to grow faster, et cetera. So I, I get it. No, it I understand. Harder. So let's talk about communication with the board. Um, you know, some obviously all boards will maybe be different. I've been with boards where they want to have, you know, weekly or bi-weekly conversations, right. Depending on, on their involvement. Others are, you know, they'll call you once a quarter and be like, Hey, how are things going? You know, it just depends on that. But in your mind, what is a good cadence of, you know, outside of their specific requirements to keep up communications with the board and more specifically, if you're, if you're trying to hone in relationships with individual board members, what, what's your frequency of kind of just touch, touch points and, and communication with them? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. I think it varies a lot by the board members. I think you have to read their cues about mm-hmm. how willing they are to engage. Some people that I don't want, they're, you're a small investment forum. They don't really want to engage that much. You're just, um, they, they're, they're not looking to build a relationship. Um, others, sometimes they like, um, We've had some local Utah, like Epic, you know, sometimes uh, Nick, I don't know if anybody in Utah knows Nick from Epic, but yeah, Nick, we yeah. do mountain bike rides uh, for people. And that was always a good way to go spend a few minutes with Nick or something in a totally casual way. Uh, and it was he, it was him initiating it, but, but we showed up, you know, we just went and it was a, a good excuse to hang out with some. So I think a lot of it's just on the cues from each VC individually, how to do it. One of the greatest things I found here in Utah is getting board members to come out a day early or leave a day late after board meetings during the winter. Utah is such a great ski destination. Most of my friends from California come here to ski versus going to Tahoe because the traffic's so bad. So it's just a good excuse to have people come out. You hang out with them for a day. You feel like a god because you live in Utah and you probably ski better than them. So it feels great anyway. So it's always (laughs) kind of fun to just bring people out and have a casual day that's really natural and super easy. So that's my, my like, number one thing I'd say is take, read the cues from each person and do what feels as natural as possible. A lot of board members don't love it if you're doing the super awkward, try to get to know you stuff, because they just feel like, I see what you're doing and I don't, I'm kind of annoyed by it. But the more natural it can feel, the more real the relationship will be. Got it. So authentic, obviously. Okay. Yeah. So specifically 
always try to foster those authentic relationships, doing things, you know, and I, I guess if you want to be more intentional about it, create environments or situations where those relationships can occur. Like you said, Holy planning man. a ski trip or something else, right? Where you can have an opportunity to develop that. That was a good example. Years ago, I had a, a lifted Jeep Wrangler and I had done the Rubicon Trail mm -hmm. and just finding somebody that, hey, oh, I used to own a Jeep and that, then Jeeps became our thing. We would talk about our Jeeps. And it was just a natural weird thing, but it's, you got to figure out what each person has that common string you can tug on to figure out how to be connected. And I admit some people are way harder than others. We used to have a lady that was a, a, a former Apple executive. I could, I, I sat next to her at one lunch, tried to talk to her at the end of it. I'm like, I have nothing. You know, I, I was like, after an hour, I really had almost nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just it was hard I never really connected with her and I, I still to this day don't know what I've done differently it's just sometimes it's hard it's hard I get it okay well let's talk about um, a little bit more on the relationship side uh, in the board you obviously have a lot of intelligent people that are passionate about the success of the business and sometimes those ideas and their ideas for what the business should do don't align, especially sometimes it's the board versus other board member, or it may be the board versus the CEO. Their disagreements are, are a natural part that are going to occur. So my question for you is, you know, from a board management standpoint, as the CFO, where you have a direct line to the CEO and a dotted line to the board, disagreements between board members or disagreements between the CEO and the board, how do you think about that and address that from your perspective? Any, any thoughts on, on how you would approach those, those scenarios? This is a, I'm going to give you my answer, but I'll admit that I don't know that my answer is the perfect answer in, in many situations. I've always had a theory that um, I should never appear different than the CEO to the board. Like any, any problems that the CEO and I have should be resolved before we go in front of the board. We need to be aligned when we go to the board. Even if it's me saying, I disagree with you, but I'm going to disagree and go forward with your plan to the CEO, mm -hmm. because I don't think that it's, it's helpful to show internal dissension within your company. So that's my personal Great. philosophy is I always align with my CEO before I step in with the board. If we've got to duke it out, we'll duke it out ahead of that, but I'm not going to duke it out in front of the board because that just, it causes chaos. So that's my personal philosophy. No, well, I, no, I agree a hundred percent. Right. And I mean, I've, I'm sure as you have, I've been in executive meetings where there's been a lot of passion, a lot of, uh, a lot of disagreements and whatnot, but I know, I think that's a core tenet of an executive team is, is that even if some members of the team disagree. Everyone knows that when the meeting is done and everyone goes out, everyone's 100% together and just wants to make the plan succeed, right? That's, yep. Yep. that's, that's gotta that. be a core. Yep. Yep. Uh, I agree on that. Uh, now here's a good one that, that I'd love to talk with you about is, um, you know, what <laughs> get, getting fired, obviously, right? If you're not doing what the board expects of you uh, or the CEO or whatnot, you're going to get fired as a CFO. So tell me in your mind, what are those items that'll get you fired? How can you identify what those potential issues are? And, and obviously how can you mitigate them? Yeah. The number one reason I've seen executives get fired and CFOs included in this bucket is they don't get along with the CEO. The CEO doesn't respect them, doesn't respect their voice. And a lot of that doesn't, it's not being smart or being right. In a lot of ways, it's just being kind of a jerk. You kind of get sick of each other and you start pushing back and arguing. It's a little bit like having a belligerent kid, you know, and 
and you just get after a while you just go you just got so sick of fighting with them you know you kind of wish you could fire your kid but you can't you know <laughs> the ceo can fire you and that's the number one thing i've seen executives get fired for is when they just can't get along they're just not aligned and they they can't seem to get behind what the ceo wants to do and that you know sometimes it's right sometimes it's wrong but um that's the number one thing for cfos specifically the other thing i've seen people that CFOs, in fact, I just saw one here um, recently and one of my friends took over this CFO position was when there's a consistent lack of competence in any of the foundations. For example, if I show up one quarter and say, hey, we found an error in the financials and it never happens again, my job's safe. There's very unlikely it's gonna happen. But I show up one quarter and then I show up another quarter and show up another quarter. And if there's consistent errors and stuff, even if they're small, but it's just that annoying, like you can't get it right. Like people lose confidence in anybody where the numbers are bouncy. You don't know the numbers. It's, the CFO, it's just, it's like the foundation cement level. You have to know your numbers and they can't change. They have to be right. You can't be restating. If any of that happens, you know, you do that a couple of times. And I think it's time to polish up your resume because there's a real good chance that the board just gets fatigued. Like this guy doesn't even know what he's doing. He can't even he can't even keep the numbers straight. There's a real good chance that you're just going to lose confidence in the board. And once that confidence is gone, it's almost impossible to get it back. No, I, well, yeah, that's I I agree 100. I've, I mean, what I'll say about that is is you know if you if your numbers or there's if people are doubting the data itself, it, it becomes a discussion of the data, right? As opposed to what are you supposed to be doing with the data, right? I think I think a lot of my listeners probably have been in a meeting where you're presenting a report and someone brings up, there's an error, like, oh, there's, there's this math error or something like this, right? But we've all maybe experienced that at some point in time. And then the issue becomes, well, is the rest of the report right, right? Is yeah. there something else wrong? Is there, everything. you know, yeah. it, it, they start questioning everything. And then basically the whole data, even if, even if, even if the the error is immaterial, the doubt it casts basically is just, especially if you have a very important message, it's just a total distraction from the the true issue of managing the business and the, and the point you're trying to drive home, right? So I, no, yep, I, I agree. It's I, a it's a spiral. I've seen people get fired for that before. Once people once your leader loses confidence in you, it's almost impossible to get it back. Okay, that's good. Um, let's ask a, another question for you. Um, pushing back on the board, right? Um, and, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I guess it's possible that maybe there are some boards out there that just want the CFO to be a yes man. I would, I would hope not, but it, I think there's appropriate times when you have to push back. And I'll give, a, I'll give an example on, you know, personal for me is, you know, with the coronavirus, we had these PPP loans, right? And I think when the first came out, there was a lot of question of, especially with VC backed companies, what qualified you if, you know, what were the qualifications to actually get a PPP loan? Right. Um, and if, you know, if you were a VC, what percentage of ownership you would have, and if it would be bundled all together, and if that would disqualify, there was a lot of, 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 you know, uh, questions around that. And, uh, our board had some questions and they had taken the position that, that our company was disqualified from applying for a PPP loan because they were, you know, obviously had many multiple investments and this and that. And so I did some extensive digging on this to understand and talk with other CFOs and understood that there were specific, you know, like negative controls that you could eliminate. Um, and then also, 
you know, outside of just ownership, if you did certain things that were had very minimal impact to the control that the that the VCs already had, you could safely qualify for that. And so I pushed back pretty hard on the board saying, no, we can apply for this, we qualify. And I remember having a lot of discussions with them walking through the documentations, the instructions, all of the guidances that the, you know, the SBA came out. And eventually they came around and said, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. Right. And it was, and it was, it was good. We got that PPP loan, which was a good sum of money. It helped us get through that, uh, that, um, that period. But it's, uh, I, I think, you know, strongly that, you know, I, that the board likes a CFO with backbone, right? That has a, is willing to kind of put out there and push um, when they feel, you know, right. When you have a conviction of what you're feeling is correct, um, obviously you need to know when no means no, and you know, kind of push back. But um, I, I think that that element of of pushback with the board when it's appropriate is is very appropriate. I'm curious how that's played in in your career. Uh, I, the thing that I noticed in your story there was by the time you met with the board, you were prepared for that meeting. You had the information. You were able to show them, hey, here's my solution. And here's why what you're worried about isn't a concern. And so I think you had a great conversation because you were prepared. The biggest risk I see with people when they get into arguments with the board, don't have a conversation you're not ready for. It's just you're dealing with extremely bright people who are very self-confident and there's a lot of people in the room, a lot of egos in the room. If you're not ready to have a conversation, you're far better off saying, that's a great point. I'll come back to you in three days, in four days. And what I, the, the great advantage that you have is that most of the VC folks don't have the, you know, they don't have the same time to dedicate to the, to the answer that you do. And, you're, and you know the company better. So you can go answer the question better than they can if you take the time to prepare and come back. And I found that the outcomes tend to be a lot better. If I'm not ready for the conversation, delay them politely, just kick it out. Doesn't need to be long, just a day or you know a couple of days, as soon as you can get the key people back together uh, and then have that conversation because it's so difficult. If you have a conversation that's baked on you know half half true facts and like, partial data, you can end up in a really bad position that people are reluctant to back out of because I committed to it, even though you committed on bad assumptions. Right. So that's the number one thing I, my CEO currently has helped me with is just don't, if you don't know the answer, just like politely say, hey, we'll get back to you. We'll come on and, and that's okay, but then do it, follow up quickly and get it done. Got it. No, that makes sense. Let's let's walk through a scenario, and I, I want to understand your mind and your thought process. Let's suppose that you're preparing for a quarterly board meeting, and your company's missed the target. So you have a bad news situation that you're trying to address with the board. In your mind, what is the thought process you kind of go through in terms of messaging? What data are you preparing? Um, are there maybe alternate forecast scenarios? Or just just how are you preparing for? that meeting and what's maybe the follow-up after or the preparation for that meeting in that kind of scenario? Yeah, I think it's a scenario we've all been in or um, if you haven't been in it yet, you will be. <laughs> <laughs> I think I the first thing I do is just bucket where the miss is and the, the miss, you know, you can break things into, is this just timing and the, and the year's fine, which ends up being fairly, you know, it's gonna, that's going to be a benign conversation. If you can say, hey, it was just timing, one big deal shifted out, it's just going to come next quarter. I'm not changing my annual forecast. Typically, that goes over pretty well. So that's kind of my, you know, if I can fit that bucket, I'm always going to play that story, first of all. If there is a lasting impact, then it's quantifying the impact. And then you say, okay, if this is the impact, what am I going to do about it? So if I miss the forecast and say, hey, I missed this forecast, 
then I can say, but I have these actions to correct it, either on the cost side or the revenue side, then that's a you know, slightly, not a great story, but still slightly better than just saying, hey, we missed it. And last, if you get to the place where, hey, it's, just, it's unrecoverable, we've made a big difference. That's the scenario I always try to avoid is walking into a meeting saying, hey, we missed it. And guess what? I don't have any way around it. You know, it's a, it's just, it's gone. And occasionally that happens when you have, you know, you, there's a, you know, a lot of times it's like, I was going to sign a big deal or something. And they, they came back in and, and the deal didn't sign. And you're like, I can't make that up. That was, you know, that was 30% of our bookings this year. You can't make that up. There's no way around that. And those are the hardest conversations is when there's something's gone wrong and there's no way to recover. And then it's more, what I have to do is find a way to make it like, what am I going to do about in anything? Even if it's just their little bit of just kind of easy things, they're things that are nowhere near matching the, the magnitude, but they're, you're offering something, you're offering some, you know, olive branch to kind of make your way back uh, and show you're trying, but you always have to have some action plan when you miss and saying, this is what I'm going to do. Or if it, you know, in the best case, it's, it's already done. Here's why it's not going to be as bad as it looks. But I always have to bucket them first into what I think is. And then what's the action plan associated with that? So the board always knows that, yes, you miss, but here's what I'm doing about it. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So in keeping with your, your, previous, your previous comments, if we go to the extreme example where you've missed it and there's no recovery, uh, one is, you know, obviously being in alignment with your CEO first, duking that out, understanding, getting on the same page in terms of what's, what's the plan rolling forward. Before the board meeting, however, though, I would assume that in keeping with your no surprises comment that your CEO is probably having conversations with, with the board. Maybe you're having some conversations yeah. with them before the board meeting to kind of, and obviously this is obviously not a surprise, right? If you're a good CFO, right? You've probably seen this from a, a little bit of a ways out that, hey, we've we've missed this and you've maybe been doing some prep. You're priming the board to understand these are the challenges we're facing. These are the potential risks. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing and assuming that, you know, you're having conversations with them. And so you, you've sent the board deck out way before, maybe you had some private discussions based on your dynamics with, you know, individual board members that you're concerned about to make sure they're there. And then basically in the board meeting itself, it's a confirmation of everything you've discussed and reiteration, getting their more combined collective input on your action plan of what you're going to do to correct and course correct and whatnot. And then maybe potential some follow-up afterwards. They may, you know, ask for some different scenarios, or have you considered this? Um, that's that's kind of the the kind of summary of that. Would you agree with that? I, I agree with that. That's one of the advantages I think of having your board meeting. You know, at least a month after you close the quarter. You know, there's a little because most of the time the key things you know your financials may not be perfectly, your clothes may not be done, your financials may be perfect, but you know whether you're materially on or off for the quarter within a day or two of closing the quarter. Right. You can have those conversations almost a month ahead of your board meeting and get that. And the nice thing about that too is if you are missing by a lot, it gives them a month to cool off too before you have to see them. So right. I agree. You want to have those conversations early and quickly after you're aligned internally about what's going on. And my, my CEO likes to communicate and he's really proactive that way. I've seen right. different um, organizations. I will caution people though. If, if uh, I've seen some CEOs tend to throw the CFO under the bus and make them always talk to the board. I don't, not, I don't think that's best practice. I think that most, the best CEOs I've seen take ownership and they're at least they're with you if not doing it themselves. So. Right. Well, let's talk about that just for a minute. I, 
I have always in my career when I'm reporting numbers, whether it's executive reporting or board reporting, I've always stuck to the facts, right? Just in my tone, especially in the communications, I, I, I avoid inserting my opinion or, or saying like, this is why I think I just, I stick to the facts. This is what happened. This is exactly what it was. I feel, uh, you know, if I've ever had to interject my opinion, I feel like there's, there's obviously this risk of offending someone or misinterpreting, you know, the facts. Uh, I I, I always take that stance of just, just, uh, you know, addressing the facts as is. And I'm curious if that's kind of how you in communications have you've addressed it at some point in time, I'm certain the board may corner you and be like, what are you thinking, David? Right. What, what's, what's going on here. And then you kind of have to, you know, express your opinion on that. But how do you, how do you manage that? In all the formal communications, I agree with you. I tend to stick just as this it's reporting. It's just, here's what's happening. Try not to try not to lead into blame or speculation. The bet. And I, we all know this, that when you walk into an answer and says, it's not, marketing missed or sales missed it's we missed the team missed it's always that that attitude that i'm part of the team we're all responsible for every part of this i'm not blaming anybody i'm not throwing them out of the bus i think that that's you know kind of leadership 101 stuff that i'm sure we all do but i think it's critical you just you know you walk in and you say here's what happened and it's not blaming but here's the facts and it's just Sometimes you just like, I got to figure out what we're going to do about it. But telling, sharing the facts right away, objectively, I, I agree with you, Anthony. I think that's just part of our job. And we've probably all, most of us have learned to do that by now is not to interject a bunch of speculation because it typically just ends badly. If you need help, like you, if you, like, let's say there's a CFO who is trying to address things with the board and just needs help and how to develop it. What would you tell them? Like, what's the best way to, you know, you can't go to the board, maybe not feel comfortable going to the CEO. What would you give them as an advice to, you know, how to work through issues, talk through them? What would be your avenue of, of, of resource for that? When I've seen that happen the most, it's typically, a lot of times a young entrepreneur what's not very experienced will hire a more experienced CFO. And when you've got that kind of more experienced CFO giving advice, um, I think that it's, it's often helpful to find coaches or somebody other than you to give the same advice um, and show that, hey, look at the, you know, some of the best, biggest CEOs in the world still use personal coaches to help you. It's dangerous, I think, to have, uh, for, to, to be the one that's responsible for your boss's success and in, in, uh, from personality traits. I think that it's easier to help them find an outside source that does what you think is necessary, but then it's a third party and they can yell at them. They can scream, they can believe or not, but it doesn't affect your relationship. Feedback's hard. I mean, just like, it's like, we all know with our wives, our kids, anybody, like nobody likes critical feedback. And so the less you can put your, you know, it, you always got to be careful. I share things. You don't want to be, you want to be honest, but like, don't make yourself responsible for a CEO changing his personality. That's just mm-hmm. a, you're asking to fail. Like just try to find some other way to get the goal accomplished. That's not involving you as the middleman. Great. No, no, that makes sense. Well, we got two things to wrap up here. Um, this has been great, David. Uh, for, let's, let's, let's end with two things. First, let's talk about your top do's and don'ts when working with the board. Let's start with your do's and talk, talk us through it. Yeah, the number one thing like my do with the board is, you know, you just got to be transparent with them and honest and treat them with this respect and partnership. Like the biggest, like, and this is to my, to my do not, 
the biggest thing I've seen, especially young entrepreneurs do is like, I don't give an F what the board says. I'm in charge here. And after, you know, being an entrepreneur for a while, starting a company, a lot of times it's very easy to have that attitude. But I just, I've watched a couple CEOs just around Utah over the last couple of years get fired because they, the board didn't trust them. The board didn't like them. They, they kept having this attitude of like, it's my company. I can do whatever the heck I want. It's not. At some point, you know, when if, if you're the majority shareholder, a lot of, of your board will put up with you. But the second you're not the majority shareholder, your job's on the line. And I think that for everybody, like, especially the CEOs, I see this happen. But as a CFO, don't fall in line. Your, your CEO may say, I don't care what the board says. Don't ever, like, no, no, that's, that's great. You do care what the board says. And so right. don't ignore them. Always treat them as partners, treat them with respect and know that they're most of the time they're there to help. They're not there to harm. If you ever feel like they're there to harm you, then you might want to rethink your frame in the world because they're not likely to harm you. They may have a different opinion of how to get to a different you know, end point, but they're, they don't, they're not motivated to harm you. But a lot of people get that mindset that their board's there to constrain them or harm them. And it's never true. Mm, no, that makes sense. I, uh, I really like your, your concept of, of don't ignore them. Um, and just to, to wrap up, the golden rule, you know, number two is no surprises, right? And in alignment with your don't ignore them concept, um, you you want to be firmly in control of your relationship with the board, right? And I think the key word is intentional. You need to be intentional with your relationship with them. So my, my challenge, I guess, to the listeners and to all of us is, you know, kind of going through this exercise, you know, sit down. If you're, if you're dealing with a board, rank, sit down and write down on a piece of paper and rank the strength of your relationship, you know, rank it from top to bottom. Who do you have the most, the, the strongest relationship with your board member? Who's the weakest? And then, you know, make an intentional plan to, to increase that relationship, right? Um, if you are not planning, if you, if you don't have a plan, then you're planning to fail, right? That old, that old saying that it goes through, right? And so I, I think that's, that's kind of the big, the big question that I think all of us, uh, I need to ask ourselves, are we being intentional with our management and our relationships with the board? Right. And if not, you know, what, what do we need to do to get that point to that point where we are being more intentional? What are the goals um, that we can put in place to, to solidify and strengthen those relationships? Yeah, I agree. Great. Great. Well, David, this has been fantastic. This has been an awesome topic and I really appreciate your time and sharing some of your wisdom with us. Um, and uh, again, if, um, you know, just, just thinking through this, it gives a lot to, to consider. And so really appreciate your time. And uh, again, this is Anthony with CFOleader.com. Thank you for joining us and we hope to see you again.